Hello and welcome. This is a supplemental episode of Civil Politics here on the Planetside Podcast Network. Uh, we are continuing our fascinating conversation with Christina Mensik of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, talking about disenfranchisement and voting rights. And uh, uh, the question is, you know, you're having to go out and persuade people in, in the state house that this is a law we want to pass. But are there people who are out there arguing the other side? And if so, what are their arguments? So, I mean, this takes me all the way back to yesterday when we had an election loss committee hearing and I heard some of those arguments come out. Um, one, uh, there are legislators who have jails in their district and don't want incarcerated people to vote using their jail as their residence for voting purposes. Oh, because yep. it'll skew their voters. Yep. But, oh, very interesting. I'd have to campaign with with criminals. Urgh. UMass Amherst is yeah. like that too. They don't they don't want all the students voting in Amherst. I, I've brought that comparison before, and then I sort of remind myself that you know, again, here there's a difference. I mean, obviously, you know, between I, I think that students should be able to vote where they want. I think voting matters. Period. They can. Yes, they can, they can, I think. As long as they register by our 20-day deadline and last we pass same-day registration. Um, I think that I always bring it back to the context of like, what is the reality of an incarcerated person dealing with? And so if they want to vote using their jail and they want to vote for the sheriff or they want to vote for the legislator who is the one deciding really, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the policies around incarceration in that district, like, I get it. The other opposition that we get is that basically I've had legislators say, what if you have somebody who is only incarcerated for a couple of days? Our bill basically says that about 45 days, I believe it is, before an election, everyone who's eligible to vote while incarcerated should get an absentee ballot application. I don't think that's, you know. Seems pretty simple to me. Such an insurmountable hurdle. Yeah. And then the other thing that I've gotten from some legislators, there are two last things. One is, well, it doesn't seem like this could be that many people um, who are impacted, which I actually think that, you know, if we're looking at as many as 10,000 people, I think that's quite a few. And then two, you know, one disenfranchised person is too many. And the other thing that I feel like I often need to bring up is that the impact of both felony disenfranchisement laws and jail-based disenfranchisement laws extends beyond the time that somebody is incarcerated. I've had way too many conversations with people who are back in community and think that they have permanently lost the right to vote, whether or not they even lost it at all while incarcerated. And the stakes are really high of voting when you're not eligible. You know, people are worried that if they vote or if they try and register, they're going to get a felony. They're going to get $5,000 in fines um, and, you know, five years in prison. Yeah, there was a case recently that that people have been sort of running through the headlines, but a woman who had been, I think she was in Florida or Texas or somewhere, but she thought she was eligible and she did a provisional ballot. So she actually didn't even vote. You know, it was never counted. But they, they threw the book against her for it and, it, you know, are calling it voter fraud. And she really she really thought she was eligible to vote. She, for whatever reason, hadn't regained the ability, you know, whatever state it was in. But it was uh, it was big news in sort of the, my conservative it was circle, Florida, actually. And um, it might have been was it Florida. I thought it was Florida or Texas. But 
Yeah. But yeah, that, that whole, um, you know, trying not to make a mistake. And so you err on the side of not, not voting. So. And that was being trumpeted as yeah. a, a, an example of voter fraud and a, like the problem being addressed. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, here it Are is. there any like um, nonprofit or like for-profit just basically, or, or even AstroTurf to organizations that are, your opposite number that are working. Uh, I know that we talked about the legislators, but you know, for the uh, the right to repair bill that we had in Massachusetts, we had the um, the right to repair groups, and then we had this group that was formed by the automakers talking about horrifying lies. So, is there anything like that? And that just inertia, yeah. inertial yeah, behavior. I so I don't know about, and that's a. You know, as we're trying to read the leaves about whether we have a meaningful chance at passing um, ending felony disenfranchisement with the ballot question, we've been talking about, you know, shooting for 2024. I think that the public opinion support is there. One of our questions is, will there be opposition? Right now, there are two things I know. One is I don't know of any organized opposition group in Massachusetts that's going to be working against us. I'm sure, you know, there's the, what is it? The mass libertarian seems to oppose voting things. Really? Oh, wow. Uh, For sure. Surprised. Yeah. Libertarian. Yeah. Um, But what we do know is that the, there are, I, I know there are ad campaigns coming out from the GOP that are basically seizing on pushes for um, for felony reenfranchisement and basically lifting up the idea that you know the Democrats are out here trying to get felon. You know, if you use the word felon, you're going to lose support. So get felons to vote. Lift. You know, name different crimes that are felonies. Um, and basically lift up the suggestion that this is actually a partisan ploy when research from places like Florida show that this actually, you know, I mean, and I and none of my coalition partners are doing this because of a goal to, a, you know, advance. This isn't something that's realistically going to make it. It's not, not partisan. partisan. It's, it's, it's not common part- sense, honestly. Yeah. I think that one of the things that we need to watch is how, especially as stuff with HR1 kind of heats up. Well, I'm, I'm also noticing the, uh, because there aren't any clear statistics and, and no one's required to keep track of these things. Some people say, oh, it doesn't seem like it could be that many. That's that's sort of the same kind of approach that the NRA has been pushing. You know, it's like, well, if we don't track gun crime, then, you know, we can't really say how bad it is. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good tactic. Yeah. And I'm sure that if there was an actual ballot question, which that would be great if there was a ballot question, but if there was, then there would be uh, different packs and groups that would pop up out of nowhere to try to oppose it. Maybe. I mean, it's in Florida, which was a very different rights restoration campaign. The Florida campaign was to restore voting rights to people who had already served a felony conviction. It included something I see as very controversial, a carve out, you know, basically saying that this only would affect, um, you know, exclude people who committed certain felonies from having their voting rights restored. 
So a very different campaign, but still, I think that, you know, on the scales, if you did a Florida campaign in Massachusetts, you know, I feel like they're kind of even if you match them up. There didn't wind up being a clear, organized opposition campaign, which I think it goes to a question of for whom is it worth it? And the answer might be victims' rights groups. Mm-hmm. It might be for, uh, you know, if if a party hypothetically wants to lift up the message that Democrats just want, you know, X, Y, Z people to vote. But it's a lot of money. Like ballot campaigns are really expensive and an effective opposition campaign is also really expensive. Right. So it really is hard to say. And I'm, you know, it's something to keep keep an eye on, especially because on this issue, messaging research shows that people will swing. I found this in some research I did last fall that when I asked the question, would you support ending the disenfranchisement of all currently incarcerated people? And then when I threw the word felony in, support dropped by 10 percentage points. Um, Hmm. Even when it was the same, you know, there's no difference between saying, do you support voting rights for all incarcerated people? And do you support voting rights for people serving felony convictions. So, you know, it, I mean, I think at this point, seeing what, if anything happens in other states over the next couple of years is gonna be important. Doing some messaging research is gonna be important. And then seeing, you know, as we're working for something that I see as very uncontroversial and common sense around jail-based voting, you know, we're gonna need to pay a lot of attention, obviously, to what kind of opposition organizes or comes up around that great well thank you so much for coming on anybody listening right now the links and all the information for the coalition and for restoring voting rights for incarcerated people or um it's going to be in the description of this podcast so remember to click those and again uh christina men sick sorry (laughs) thank you for being on thank you so much for having me It was fun. Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for listening to this uh, supplemental episode of Civil Politics here on the Planetside Podcast Network.